Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Our word for the day is the word stumble. Stumble. Uh, that is a, a late word for us English speakers. It doesn't enter the English language till along about the 14th century. Probably came from Scandinavia, which is probably why it sounds a little bit funny, stumble. It almost sounds like what it is, doesn't it? Stumble. Now, you know what stumble is. It's when you, you, you hit your foot when you're walking or you're running so that you fall or you almost fall. Stumble. Now, there's some things in the Bible that you can make a case for breezing past. You know, you get to a passage that talks about a certain kind of behavior, and you say, well, I don't need to spend a lot of time here because that doesn't apply to me. And you can just go right on past it. You could make that case for some parts of the Bible, I guess. In the third chapter of James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, later in his life, writes that very practical book, James. And in his little letter... He says we all stumble in many ways. In other words, all of us stumble, and there's an infinite variety of ways that we all stumble, right? We all stumble in many ways. So, since there is a whole lot of stumbling going on, this message about stumbling is not for the next person. It's for somebody a little closer to home than that. It's probably for you and me. I want you to turn to John chapter 6. And as this story opens, Jesus is being chased. You could almost say he's being hounded. He has just fed the 5,000. That's what we call it for convenience. But there were many more than 5,000 that ate bread and had lunch that day. There were probably upwards of 20,000. He had just fed all of those people, and it was a long day, and he was trying to take a break from the crowds, but he couldn't seem to shake the crowds. So because they followed him everywhere he went, he went down to the seashore, and he told his men, get in that boat and go to the other side, and I'll come in a little bit. He wanted to, to say one final goodbye and, and try and make a good exit. So they got in the boat and they depart. We know that Jesus doesn't take a boat to get to his friends. But that night as a storm arises on the sea and they begin to panic, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And that's how he gets into their boat then and gets to the other side of the lake. Now, in the morning, that crowd that had been chasing him down because he had fed them so well. They are mystified when they go down to the boat dock and they find that the only boat that Jesus could have taken that night is still tied up at the dock. They had seen the night before his disciples, the twelve, get into a second boat and they saw them leave without Jesus, but now Jesus is gone too. How did he leave if he didn't take a boat and so they got into some other boats 
and they chased him down across the lake in an effort to try and solve this puzzler, and they swarm him again because it's another day and it's likely that they're hungry again. And so he says in John chapter 6, 26 verse, Truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs or because I did things, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. You're just after me because you're hungry again. He goes on in that story telling them you're just chasing me because of the bread that I gave you. And he will say in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He sticks to the theme of bread there. And he sticks to the theme for the rest of the day. Pick it up in verse 41, John chapter 6. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. When you see the word Jews in the New Testament, it's talking about the Jewish leaders, those who lived in and around the area of Judea, southern part of Israel. That's where the word Jew comes from, Judea. And it's specifically referring to the Jewish leaders, not to the race or the religion of the Jews. Therefore, the Jews, the leaders, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? We thought he came from Nazareth in Galilee. We thought he was born of Mary. How does he say he came down from heaven. What kind of big britches does he think he is? Story goes on, he answered them. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's no danger that these fellows are going to be drawn to him, not the way they're acting. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's referring to himself. Truly, I say to you. Actually, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. That word truly means amen. We put it at the end of our prayer. Amen. Jesus put his amen at the beginning of a significant statement, and he said it twice so you wouldn't miss it. Amen, amen. I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He begins to build a context for them. He reminds them of what it was like in the 40 years that they wandered in the desert, and they didn't have anywhere to get food, but the Lord sent food. It was called manna. It came from heaven. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread, he's talking about himself, which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You thought the manna was great. What I'm offering is better. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews, the leaders, began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're taking things way too literally, aren't they? So Jesus said to them, 
There it is again, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats of me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Therefore, many of his disciples, continues in verse 60, Many of his disciples, though who had been following him, and some may be following him just for the food. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Does this cause you to stumble? There's our theme, stumble. Well, a careful and close reading of that passage, those 20 verses, will pay off here. We're talking about questions that Jesus asked and questions we should answer. And this is about number 17 that we've dealt with out of 295. So we're set for about the next three years. But our question here is in verse 61 where he asks, does this cause you to stumble, this discussion about me living in you? Does that cause you to stumble? That's our question. But the heart of what's happening here is in verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Abides in me. Lives in me and I live in him. You know, my first encounter with this whole idea of of Christ abiding in us and we abiding in Christ My first encounter with that came through a kid's song years ago that says, I love him better every D-A-Y. Close by his S-I-D-E, I I will A-B-I-D-E. That's the song. Remember the song? That's the first time I ever encountered this whole idea of Christ abiding in us and we abiding in Christ. But it's a little more involved than the song, and it's a little closer than beside. It's inside. Christ lives inside. This thing that we've looked at here, this passage, is called the bread of life discourse. The Gospel of John is organized around several prominent teachings, discourses, and at the end of his Gospel, there's another discourse that John presents us with. Chapter 15, 16, 17, it's a totally different discourse. And in it, Jesus talks about his being the vine, and we are the branches that are attached to him. That there is a a living attachment that we can have to Jesus Christ. That, That Jesus is not just something that we have in our head, a concept. That we don't just make a quick confession or pray a sinner's prayer. Jesus says there's a lot more to it than that, than just getting saved. That he lives in us. In fact, he repeatedly says in that that discourse in 15, 16, 17, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. Over and over again he says it. 
Christ living in you. It's all the way through that discourse. And it really sharpens in chapter 17 when Jesus is praying and we listen to his prayer to the Father and he's praying, Lord, I want it to be so that I am in them. I want to be in them. And then he ends up his prayer in 17 so that the love with which you love me, Father, he's praying to the Father, remember, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, listen, and I may be in them. He wants to live his life in us, you see. That's more than a trip to an altar. That's more than saying a sinner's prayer. That's more than just merely getting saved or just believing things about Jesus. It's letting him live his life inside of us. And he describes it to these people on that day as eating his flesh and ingesting his blood, taking his life into you. And what we just did at this table, communion, is a very graphic reminder of all that, you see. But our question, Jesus' question, does this cause you to stumble? This whole idea of Christ living his life in you, does that make you stumble? Do you have problems with that? Does that trip you up? What Jesus is looking for here, to live his very life in us, which is so beyond what many think of as a relationship with God. The way most people picture a relationship with Jesus is something like, well, we, we live in the same house. I live in the same house with Jesus, maybe, but we maintain separate rooms, and we have our area of the house, and Jesus has got his area of the house, and we maintain some degree of separation. That's what most people think of when they think about a relationship with Jesus. But that's not at all what Jesus wants. He wants to be closer than beside us. He wants to be within us. He wants to live within you. So do some stumble over that? Probably most people that you know are as turned off by that as these people on that day were turned off when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And nearly all of them on that day left him at that point. In fact, if you read down to the end, there are so few that remain after he talks about the necessity of eating my flesh and drinking my blood and, and that I've got to live inside of you. There are so many that are disappointed and turned off that nearly all leave. There are just a few remaining, and now he's down to the original 12. There have been thousands. But now it's back to the original 12 because of him saying that. That's how badly they stumbled over it. And you can hear the disappointment at the end of the story in Jesus' voice as those who have been fed and those that he's healed and those that he's encouraged and those that he's lifted up, they, they have all left him because they stumbled over the idea that he wants to live inside of them. And he says, you can hear it in his voice, he says to the few that are left, will you leave also? People do stumble over this. I think sometimes people stumble because what Jesus is asking for 
is just too close. It's too close. Now, in spite of what people may say, many, maybe most people who profess Christ really prefer not to get too close to Him. Because, well, if I get too close to Jesus, if I allow Him to get too close to me, He will know stuff. Newsflash, He already knows stuff. Or He will see stuff. He already sees stuff, all the stuff. I think sometimes people stumble when they think about Jesus being too close, being so close that He's within because it it represents to them a loss of freedom. I won't be as free to do what I want to do if Jesus lives inside of me. And so they automatically stumble and push Him away. But the freedom that they value so highly, free to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, the freedom to look out only for your highest pleasure, Or making your own desires and your own thinking the final court of appeal. To have that freedom, that's really a prison of the self. You have put yourself in a tiny little box, if that's what you mean by freedom. Jesus will say that only the one who loses his or her life, who gives up that overbearing right to please themselves, is the only one who ever really starts to live, you see. People sense, and I think they sense correctly, that involvement with Jesus means He becomes Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means master, you see. Master. Master. And when I, when I truly allow Him in, He will take over the throne of my life. He will. That throne in my life where I like to sit. He will come in and say, off that chair, that's my chair now, see. So many say that they want Jesus, but only in small doses. And they want Him at arm's length. They want a Savior that can be controlled. Too bad, because since He rose from the dead, since He has come back to life, roaring back to life, He is on the loose, and you can't tell what he might be up to today. You can't control him. But I think some people stumble at this whole idea of Jesus living his life in them because that's just too close. I think others, it's a case of it's too lonely. If I would do that, it's just too lonely. Again, if you scroll down in this story, Only the 12 are left that he started with. Everybody else is gone. When when it's a surging crowd, when it's a popular movement to be a part of, it swells and it takes on a, a dynamic life of its own. And people enjoy that. But sometimes walking with Christ is lonely. There's an old song that says, I walk today where Jesus walked. Part of the lyrics say, I I knelt today where Jesus knelt, and all alone he prayed. He was all by himself. And if you're going to follow him, there are times when you're going to sense you're by yourself too. You're not, but you'll feel that way. Paul will say it this way, 
there'll be a, just a, a huge urge in his life, and, and he will say, it's almost overpowering to him, and he gushes in the way he says it, oh, that I may know him, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection, and who wouldn't want to know that, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. That's part of the package, too. And I'm very, very sorry if somebody painted a, a too rosy and an unreal picture for you about walking, what walking with Christ is like. But back to the song. At the end of it, it says, I picked my heavy burden up and with him at my side, I climbed the hill to Calvary where on the cross he died. I walked today where Jesus walked and felt him close to me. And sometimes that's when you feel him the nearest, is when you feel like you're by yourself. But for some people, it's too lonely, and they stumble over it. But for other people, it's too much. Jesus has a full agenda. He says his desire is that our lives would be full and satisfying that they would be full of his presence and full of his excitement. He says it this way, I want that you would have a life and have it more abundantly, bigger than you can imagine. I think sometimes that people that play with sin are thinking too small about pleasure. People, people think about sex as the ultimate or, or the best of food or if I could live in the best of houses and I would suggest that they're settling way too low. Because what Jesus has in mind for you is beyond anything that we could ask or think or imagine, you see. He has an agenda that our life would be full. And when new life surges in us, when He becomes, comes to live in us, well, our habits begin to change and and things that you used to like, you no longer like. And you begin to spend your time and your money differently. And, and you are changing, you see. And some people say, that's too much. I don't want to change that much. But when he comes to live in you, he will change because he's got an agenda. And it's a good one and a full one. And things will change. And for some, that is too much. Jesus will heal two demoniacs. In the graveyard of all places, I guess if you're a devil, that's where you belong. These two men will be healed miraculously and delivered. And when Jesus is finished, they are clothed, sitting in their right mind, talking all kind of sense. As the word begins to seep into the town, people begin to come out to see these lunatics, these maniacs, these, these fellows that would go berserk and that you could not contain or chain them. They came out to see them, and they found it. Sure enough, they're sitting there talking normal, and they've got clothes on, and they're not cutting themselves, and they're not screaming and shrieking and jumping in and out of the graves. They're okay. And when the townspeople see the results of Jesus' work, the oddest thing happens. They beg Him to leave. Jesus, you've got to get out. Why is that? Because they want what a lot of people want. We want Jesus, but we want Him in manageable, small doses. And He won't do that. And so they invite Him to leave. 
Jesus will not be managed. And he will not come in a small way. And for many people, he is too much, too much change. But mark it down, you cannot manage him. You cannot handle him. At the end of the Narnia, one of the Narnia stories, in the story, there is a lion, Aslan, who is the hero. And you realize as you read the story that Aslan is really Jesus Christ. And at the end of one of the stories, somebody says, Aslan is a lion, but he is not a tame lion. Our Savior is not a tame Savior. And for some people, that's too much. Now, the life that Jesus is talking about, Him living in you, is too much, too close for some. But look, before we leave, here's the truth about that life that He offers. Number one, his life is eternal. Look at what he says in the 47th verse. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. He backs it up again in verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. He's talking about himself. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. If you get me inside of you, you will live forever. When this discussion is taking place, Jesus has one thing in mind. There are people that have read it and have another. And with this discussion of the flesh and blood of Christ, there are some Christian friends, Roman Catholics among them, who take this passage to be talking about communion, what we did here today. And they see in this discourse support for the idea that those elements, the blood, They become actually blood and they become actually the body. They're somehow turned into the actual body of Christ. And because Jesus is talking about flesh and blood here, they see support for that. Well, you can hold that position about eating the flesh and drinking the actual blood of Christ, but you can only do it until verse 58. Because in verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Well, we can't say that about communion, can we? I've known plenty of people that have gathered at this table, and they're gone. They died. So we can't say that about those elements. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is not the actual body and blood of Christ. We're not talking about those elements. We're talking about eternal life. And when you take the eternal life of Christ into you and let Him live, you will live forever. If you take Jesus in, if you stop keeping Him outside of your life and outside of your life experiences, you will live forever. In fact, the only kind of life that Jesus offers or even talks about is eternal life. His presence in you, listen, His presence in you is what makes the life that you have eternal. It's because it's His life and He lives forever. He's already passed beyond death and He's living in you and that life will live forever. And so will you. Think of it. He says in the last book in the Revelation, 
the apocalypse, the, the unveiling in the revelation of Christ, he says to John, listen, I am the first and I am the last. I am the A, I am the Z. I am the alphabet of existence. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And in another place, he says, because I live, listen, you will live also. If he lives inside of you, his life is eternal. And so is yours. There's another thing. His life has a goal. Look at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says essentially the same thing back in verse 40, and it's sprinkled throughout what he has to say to us throughout the Gospels. This is no small theme with Jesus that we will live forever and that our bodies will be resurrected. Because you see, it's not just the salvation of your soul that Jesus is interested in. Every religion talks about the salvation of your soul in one way or another. But only what this book and only what Jesus is talking about does it deal with the full redemption of your body. Your body will be bought back. I was at the Lifehouse this last week. That's a care facility on 34th Street visiting some people. And as I walked through the halls, I saw all of these older folks and their bodies are deteriorating. And some of them are broken. And they're not functioning like they used to. But as you begin to talk to the people, the spark is still there. The life is still there. But their body has deteriorated. Something, I thought this as I walked out, I thought something bad has happened to those marvelous bodies that used to run and jump and play ball and work hard and do chin-ups and everything else. Something bad has happened to those marvelous, incredibly intricate bodies. Jesus says, one day you will receive a body like His glorious body. It'll be reversed. It'll be restored. Your glorified body is the same as your body today, numerically. The body that you will get when He touches your life and restores you completely and saves not just your soul, but your body. That body is the same body you've got now. It's the same body numerically. And it will be a physical, material body, but not like any body you've ever known. Think about Jesus' resurrected body. What it could do. Touch me. See, I'm real. But walls meant nothing. Time and space meant nothing. I've said for a long time, if, it, if it's okay with God, the very first thing I want to do with my resurrected body is surf on the sun. Just because I can. What we can do with those bodies, you see. You'll get a body like His glorious body. The Bible says when we see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Examine the Gospels on your own and you'll see what His resurrected body can do. His resurrection was the crowning achievement. 
It was the defeat of death and the corrosion that's caused by sin. And that's the goal that he's got for you too. You see, this life that he offers has a goal, and that's it. Well, what will that body be able to do? Once it's fully glorified and fully brought back and fully redeemed and fully restored, what will your body be able to do? Nobody knows. The resurrection power of Jesus, listen, if he lives in you, it's surging through you right now. It's already there. And one day it will explode into an unbelievable and perfect creation that you were always meant to be. Just one last thing, verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, lives in me, and I live in him, her. Jesus isn't living anywhere else. He's living in you. You know, I have a, a pair of sweatpants that are favorites. I would have brought them, but they're pretty poor looking. I'm a little embarrassed that they would get out of the house. But they're my favorite sweatpants. Call them a track suit if you want. They're sweatpants. And they're pretty beat up. And they're raggedy. But we have history. And those pants to me are like the velveteen rabbit. I like them not because of the way they look. They don't look good, but because I'm used to them. I don't know why I keep them, because they're not any good to me anymore. And the reason they're not any good to me anymore is the waistband has lost its elasticity. <laughs> so if I would put them on, they would sag in the back. Now, I realize that a lot of people like to wear their pants that way, but I am not prepared to make that fashion statement at this time. They've lost their elasticity, and sometimes words do that. Words can go only so far. Words can go only so far before they, too, lose their elasticity. And the best way I can describe his life is in you is by saying, and it doesn't begin to do it justice, my heart becomes his home. My life becomes his home. That's the best I can do with the words that I have. This body and this soul become a place that's fit for Christ to dwell. Where, where he is at home and he is pleased to dwell. Paul will say it much better. He says it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is great excitement about what will happen to us later, right? About that glorified body that I'll be able to surf on the sun in. But there's great excitement every day now, with Christ living His very life inside of you, where, where will you take me today, Jesus, as you're living inside of me? Where will you take me today? And who will you have me cross paths with today? You see, He's directing because He's living. 
How will you defeat Satan through my actions today? How will you establish and build your kingdom in me today? What eternal business are we going to conduct today, Jesus? See, that can be your excitement every single time you open your eyes to a new day. What are we going to do today? And for that reason, there are no ordinary days for you. And there are no ordinary followers of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.